Let me begin by saying that it's, a, it's an awesome responsibility and a great privilege to preach from God's Word. And I mean that in the sense of being awestricken truly and burdened by the weight of it. Preparing a sermon is some of the hardest work you can do, and I'm sure those who preach will agree. It's surrounded by great spiritual warfare. We feel convicted as we study, convicted from the weight of it, knowing that as we stand here, we fail and struggle at the very same things that I'll be exhorting and challenging you to this morning. That's what the gospel is all about, but at the same time, we don't want to be desensitized. We want our preachers and teachers to have a, a sensitive heart and a tenderness toward the Lord's challenges. And so maybe I'm going to start off with a little challenge and with a little application that you would pray for those who teach and lead, pray for your elders this year in 2020, those who stand here and preach, and extend that to those who teach throughout the ministries of our church, teaching young children where the concerns are a little different. You're concerned whether anything is actually going into the ears, much less getting into the hearts some days. But would you pray for those who preach and teach God's word this year? So that's what makes us a burden. At the same time, it's a privilege. It really is a privilege to quiet your heart and linger in God's word, to study and mine the riches. And of course, that's not really a privilege for only a preacher. That's a privilege that we can all enjoy. And so this time of year, when we look at Bible reading plans and and the like, be sure to take time to linger and meditate. We sang this morning, My Soul Waits. We sang a few weeks ago, Be Still and Know That I Am God. And those are such important things to do. And I know that every time I, I take a moment and linger, it's amazing how God will meet us in his word when we do that, when we wait on him. So those are two thoughts that struck me as I prepared the sermon this week. And I'm thankful for those who prayed. I know the elders prayed for me as I prepared and, and others of you, so I'm very thankful for that. So let's linger on Psalm 90 this morning. Uh, you can turn in your Bibles there. This is the first Sunday of 2020, of course. It's a new year, a new decade even. And how often do we hear the phrase, time flies? What happened to 2019? Where did that go? And and now in the three weeks or so, you'll hear people say, where did January go? It's almost the end of January already. How did that happen? Our text this morning has a lot to say about the passage of time. In addition to the rapid passing of time, another theme that's ever-present this, this time of year is New Year's resolutions. And there are those who say that New Year's resolutions are counterproductive, and I'll let the, the productivity gurus debate that. But one thing that is beyond debate is that we all want to accomplish something. We want to achieve something of meaning, something of significance in our lives. Show me the person who doesn't want to accomplish something, and I'll show you a person who's profoundly unhappy. And yet we know that many people chase after achievements and chase after goals, and, and they can be profoundly unhappy and unsatisfied as well. And maybe you fit in one of those groups this morning. Well, our text addresses this matter. How can we be satisfied? How can our work be meaningful? Could our work ever have enduring or even eternal value. And so we know deep down, we feel it even as we sit here this morning, that we won't have time to do all the things we want to do in 2020, that events will conspire against us and frustrate the plans we make, 
We know that we will fail ourselves, fail to do what we want to do. We know that others will fail us. So what's the answer to this? To this tension or some days an outright war between our desire for happiness, satisfaction, and significance and the frustrations of life. Chief among them is the passage of time. So our text this morning addresses these questions head on. If you want to turn with me to Psalm 90, I want to begin at verse 12, and I'll explain why in a minute, but we'll just begin halfway through the psalm at verse 12. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands. This psalm became particularly meaningful to me around the time of my 40th birthday and by way of verse 12 there. The idea of numbering my days and making the most of my days seemed like a good thought for that 40-year milestone. And there are other so-called verses to live by in this passage, in this psalm. Verse 14, for example, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. That, that also spoke meaningful to, to me. I want satisfaction. I want joy and gladness, and especially when I was surveying my life at, at 40 years. What had I accomplished? What uh, youthful ambitions had gone unfulfilled? And then I wondered, what does my future hold? And verse 17 seemed to speak to that as well, a request to God that he would establish my work, the work of my hands. And so that's certainly a prayer to stave off midlife crisis, that God would take our work, and our work would be significant and meaningful. So this became one of my favorite psalms. And then I read the first 11 verses, and I thought, hmm, this is a bit dreary. Do these verses really qualify as favorite psalm verses? So let's read them together to get the full picture of this psalm. It starts off very well. Lord, you've been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. Soon they are gone and we fly away. And then the question. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So these are tough verses. I love the message of verses 12 to 17. Verses 1 and 2 are wonderful as well. 
But God inspired the whole psalm. It's one unified prayer. So we can't just skip over verses 3 to 11. So if this was going to be my favorite psalm, I had to come to terms with these verses. And I'm glad to say that as this psalm banged around in my head for the past few years, all of these verses have become rich with meaning. So a little bit of an outline here. This is not a a theological text in the first instance. It's a personal, experiential cry to God. A cry that accurately reflects reality. So in doing so, it provides us with rich theological truth about the nature of God, the nature of humanity. And then at the midpoint, there's that question. And this question presents a choice. And the rest of the psalm is a prayer based on choosing to live wisely according to who God is. And this leads to satisfaction, joy, gladness, and purpose in life. Now, it's important to know the context of a passage of Scripture. The immediate context concerns the author, the audience, the time and place the passage is written. And Psalm 90 is somewhat unique in in the Psalter in that it was a prayer of Moses. It is therefore the oldest of the Psalms. And most commentators think that it was written toward the end of Moses' life. And this was a period marked by death. And you need to think about this a little bit. I had to think this through. You remember the story how the the people hadn't entered the promised land. God had delivered them miraculously from Egypt, but they refused to trust God. And so they were wandering in the wilderness for these 40 years. And God judged the people saying, because they refused to enter the promised land and trust him, in fact, God said they despised him, he judged them and said, none of you who are over the age of 20, this generation that left Egypt, would enter the promised land. You'll wander in the wilderness until that whole generation dies. Some commentators think that this resulted in as many as 600,000 people dying in this 40-year period, dozens per day on average. And I imagine as the time got closer, there was more because as people aged. So this psalm was written in the context of this death that was around Moses, and Moses himself would die as well and not enter the promised land. Now, in addition to this immediate context, by virtue of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Scripture has a broader context as God unfolds his message to his people. And as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together this morning, we'll see how this psalm fits the broader context of God's message as it unfolds and reaches a climax in Jesus. Let's begin now with verses 1 and 2. These are foundational verses. They give us essential information about who God is, And the remainder of the psalm must be read in light of these two verses. Verse 1, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Moses starts first by acknowledging God as Lord, using the Hebrew word Adonai, a name for God that signifies his power and his supreme authority. Literally, he says, my Lord. In that simple address, we see that God is our master. We already start to see we are dependent. God is sovereign. Then he says, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. We don't use the word dwelling place too much in our everyday conversation, but it simply means our home. And our homes are the most intimate of places, places of comfort and and refuge. So God is our dwelling place. He is our comfort. He is our refuge. 
and we live with him. St. Moses continues to acknowledge who God is in verse 2. He's the eternal creator, the only God. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. God is not only the intimate God, he's unique in his power to be a dwelling place and a refuge because he is the creator of the earth and the world. Before there were mountains, he was there. Indeed, he is God from everlasting to everlasting. He is eternal. And in Deuteronomy 33, Moses also brings together these two foundational ideas that God is both our home, which speaks to his intimacy with us, and the Almighty Creator, which speaks to his power. Moses says, There is none like God, O Jeshurun, who rides through the heavens to your help, through the skies in his majesty. The eternal God is your dwelling place. And underneath are the everlasting arms. So there's great comfort in these two, these opening verses of the psalm. But there's also two implied warnings or challenges. Consider again the context of this prayer. The people of Israel had left their homes. They, they had settled in Egypt for 400 years, multi-generations. They had favor with the Egyptian people. Now they were wandering in the wilderness. They had no homes. They were in a land that wasn't their own. So God is making a claim which I think implies a warning, don't forget that I am your home. And this is one of the lessons that the people had to learn in the wilderness. And sadly, for many of them, they didn't heed this lesson. Instead, they grumbled. You know the story, they grumbled against God and turned their backs and even said, we wish we could be back in Egypt in our comforts of our homes. They lost sight of the fact that God was their home. And another part of the context here of these, the other warning is that the ten plagues that God unleashed to deliver the people were, were meant to show Pharaoh his power, but also meant to show power over the gods of Egypt. And the people of Israel were entering Canaan, a land of many pagan gods. And so Moses is saying here, don't forget I, or don't, he's saying about God, that I am the God, the one eternal God, the creator of all things. So as Moses prayed these opening verses, The people would have heard, don't seek a dwelling place apart from God. And you shall have no other gods before me. These are two warnings implicit in this wonderful opening. And it says that God is our dwelling place for every generation. So not just in the wandering. When you're comfortable in Egypt, when Abraham was comfortable with his pastures, in our comforts today, that's not our home. God is our dwelling place in every generation. Okay, so verses 1 and 2, the foundation of the prayer. God is the home or comfort or dwelling place for his people. He is the only eternal creator. Those are two foundational realities. That's who God is. And then verses 3 and 11 tell us, 2.11 tell us who we are. And we're entering into a new section of this psalm. Now the part I said that contains some tough verses. So verses 3 to 10 give us three realities about who we are as humankind. Simply put, our lives are short, our lives are lived under God's wrath, and our sin is the underlying problem. Now let's look at how Moses describes these three realities. 
These verses set the stage for the prayer request later in verse 12, and they make those beautiful prayer requests even more meaningful and beautiful and wondrous. So our lives are short, and Moses uses dust to convey this idea. In contrast to the eternal God, we are dust. And what's more, we are dust under the sovereign control of Almighty God. Verse 3 tells us that it is at God's command that man returns to dust. Then Moses gives three more illustrations. Verse 5 says that he sweeps us away like a flood, that we are like a dream. And isn't a dream fleeting? How many times have you had a dream and you wake up in the morning and you can't remember the dream? You're just fleeting. And the last illustration Moses gives is the grass. And it just sprouts in the morning in the desert. The grass can sprout in the morning and then fade away by evening. And then in verses 4 and verse 10, Moses continues the contrast between the brevity of life, the brevity of our lives, and the eternality of God. Let's look at verse 4. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. We focus on days and hours and even minutes and seconds, and we think a lifetime is a long period of time. But for God, a thousand years is like yesterday, here and gone. God is not bound by time. That's what it means, that he's from everlasting to everlasting. And then in verse 10, Moses refers to time in in what is a famous verse. says, the years of our life are 70, or even if by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Moses gives a guideline, generally speaking. Not always, for a life of 70 to 80 years and trouble. It sounds bleak, not exactly favorite psalm material. Of course, this is not the end of the story. But we must let these realities sink in because they're easy to ignore for too much of our lives. And sometimes some people ignore them until it's too late. This reality is especially easy to ignore in our lives with all our modern conveniences, modern medicine, and perhaps most harmful of all, modern distractions. And I could go on about that, but I won't. Life is short. It's also easy to ignore this when you're young. So young people, pay careful attention to the message of this prayer. Life is so short. People will tell you, you'll agree intellectually, But you won't really live according to this reality unless you seek God's help in the matter. I'm getting ahead of myself, but whether you're 10 years old or 20 years old, or maybe by the time you're 30 you start to realize this, I don't know. But life is short, and that's the first reality about humanity. The second reality about humanity that's expressed in this psalm is that our lives are lived under God's wrath. Verse 7 says, For we are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath, we are dismayed. And verse 9 says, For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. And these are tough verses for our modern ears to hear. So what do we make of them? Let's look again and consider the context. As Moses nears the end of his life, The last generation, the people of Israel who were delivered from Egypt, they are dying. Why? Because of God's judgment that none could enter the promised land. Moses would also die before entering the promised land because of God's judgment. 
And as this judgment is fulfilled, Moses acknowledges the people were brought to an end by God's anger. It's the reality. In this context, Moses says, we bring our years to an end like a sigh. And this is human experience under God's judgment apart from God's mercy. And we'll talk about that as we get to the ending verses about God's mercy. But the third reality is that sin is the underlying problem. Verse 8 says, You've set our iniquities before you and our secret sins in the light of your presence. God's wrath is the result of our sin. Our sin is simply rebellion against the creator God who desires to be our dwelling place. He desires to show mercy to be with us. And our sin is rebellion against that God. And there are many passages in scripture that explain quite carefully why God's holiness and justice requires judgment. And if you think about it, why we want God to be just. We, can't, we don't have time to treat all those verses here this morning. But this psalm takes a personal look at this. And it's so poignant because it speaks from deep human experience and captures how the people felt experiencing God's wrath. And then we'll see the appropriate response in a few minutes. We come to that now in the turning point of this psalm. Verse 11. Moses' question here is the turning point of the psalm. His question rings out and it's as relevant today as it was when Moses first prayed it. It presents a choice. He asks, who considers the power of your anger and the wrath according to the fear of you or according to the reverence that is due you? The first choice, the right choice, is to consider, to answer yes to Moses' question, I will, I will consider the fundamental realities of life which Moses has spoken about. God is creator, he's from everlasting to everlasting, he is our dwelling place, our true home, our life on earth is short, our lives are subject to his wrath and judgment because of our sin. So the first response is to consider these great truths. The second choice, the choice that many take today tragically, is to ignore God's wrath and the realities presented in this psalm. And this approach takes several forms. Life is short, and then you die. That's it. And there's people who think long and hard along these lines and conclude that That's truly all there is. And this logically, if you follow the logic through, leads to despair and depression, ultimately. Another approach to ignore God is to say life is short, so eat, eat, drink, and be merry, and then you die. The first option leads straight away to despair. This option adds distraction, the pursuit of false joys. And in many developed countries today, we have enough Material wealth, we have the conveniences of life. We have the ability to distract ourselves from the deep realities and deep questions of life and to forget that life is short. Entertainment is endless. And life, until the tragedy of sickness or premature death hits, can be easy. Or at least we can find distraction from life's ultimate realities. Now, lest you think I'm too cynical here this morning and describing these approaches to life, some people do choose a considered life, a moral life. Life is short, 
So make a difference before you die. And this is admirable. But it still ignores the creator God and provides no solution for God's righteous wrath against the sin in our lives. This approach to life, while having admirable aspects, still rejects God as our dwelling place. And then a final approach is life is short and I'm in charge. This is a bit of a variation on the previous approach, but it involves elevating personal autonomy and personal sovereignty as a chief reality. There's a sense in which it is summed up as life is short. Sometimes it goes like this, life is short, but it's God's fault and I'm going to fix it. And time doesn't permit exploring these responses in detail. The last one in particular, which is more and more prevalent today, the assertion of personal autonomy as the chief reality. It's so common. We don't have time to look at it now, but read Romans chapter 1, verse 18, and the following few verses and see what God thinks of that approach. So if you are ignoring the realities described in verses 1 to 11, you are in a very dangerous place. Moses says that your days we brought about are brought to an end by God's anger. If you're in this situation today, listen carefully to the remainder of Moses' prayer. It is a cry to God of someone who has seen God's wrath displayed poignantly and physically and tangibly, that the futility of life, the wrath of God, the guilt of our sin would be replaced. That's what Moses cries out for. This wrath would be replaced. This guilt would be covered. Moses requests that we're going to look at now in a moment, recognize that we have no hope apart from God that the only hope in the face of the bleak realities of life are to turn to God and his mercy. And for those of us who are Christians this morning who have turned to God and his mercy, these verses are wonderful and timely as we enter 2020, a timely reminder of how we should live and how we can rise above the realities and the difficulties of life. So let's consider the six prayer requests In verses 12 to 17. Verse 12 says, So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. The verse doesn't say our days are numbered. It asks God to teach us. To teach us this reality. Oh, how easy it is for us to forget. Even even those of us who, who read God's word and know that we're finite. How easy it is to forget that life is short. We get caught up in the days, the months, the years, and live as if we have this long expanse of life and we can count on it, as if that's all there is. So this prayer recognizes that we need teaching, that this wisdom doesn't come naturally to our fallen human hearts. So God, teach us to number our days. What does that mean? First, it speaks to the fundamental difference between us and God that was addressed in earlier verses, that our days on earth are numbered and God's are not. Numbering our days means that we recognize not only the brevity of our lives, but the eternality of God, and that is how we gain a heart of wisdom. We begin to be wise when we recognize who God is and live accordingly. And wrapped up in this thought also is is a yielding to God, to ask God to teach us Our days are numbered is part of what it means to fear God, to recognize him for who who he is 
in relation to who we are. And David, so that Moses is in this psalm, David takes up the same theme in Psalm 39 and, and other psalms as well. But David says, O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you've made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they're in turmoil and busy. That's what he means. Man heaps up wealth and doesn't know who will gather. And now, O Lord, what do, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. So David says that life is a breath, and he points to the meaninglessness of life lived for temporal priorities, such as heaping up wealth, as the example he gives. Numbering our days means putting our hope in God, not in temporary things. Second, numbering our days means making them count. If we know they're brief, then how do we make them count? What do we do with those days? The Apostle Paul, writing to the Ephesians, further expands in the brevity of our lives and and how it should affect how we use our time. And he says, look carefully. So in 2020, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time. Because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. You can go on and read the rest of that passage, outlines some of what the Lord's will is for us. So the message for us is to make our lives count, make our days count by doing his will. Understand his will for your life, and as you survey 2020, apply this wisdom to your plans and your priorities. Don't just let 2020 happen to you. That wouldn't be numbering our days. That wouldn't give you, wouldn't give me a heart of wisdom. We ask God to give us a continual sense that our days are numbered so that we will have a wise heart to live for him this year. Now verse 13. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. This is the second request. And once again we see our dependence on God and his mercy and comfort. The sense of the word return here is that God would turn back his wrath. The Christian Standard Bible translates this verse, Lord, how long? Turn and have compassion on us. So in this verse, pity has a sense of consoling and comforting us. And this is a personal cry. We talked about God being our dwelling place, that he's not far off. This cry stems from that reality because you wouldn't cry out to God in this way if he was a disinterested God. So we cry out to God in dependence on him. Now verse 14. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. This is such a rich request. And the antidote to any sense of futility in life It's a primal request, and by that I mean it's the desire of every man, woman, and child to be satisfied, to be content, to be at peace. And when you look back at 2019, 
Are you satisfied? How did you pursue satisfaction in 2019? What was it that you thought would satisfy? Did it? What about the year ahead? What are your goals? What are you pursuing for your satisfaction? Now Moses didn't ask for satisfaction from the promised land, for example. Even though it was God's promise for the people of Israel. It would have been to no avail anyway, since many of the people were going to die and they weren't going to see that promise. So does that mean there was no satisfaction for them? Moses asked that God would satisfy them with his steadfast love. And the Hebrew word translated steadfast love here is rich in meaning. You don't have to know Hebrew and Greek, I don't, to experience the power of God's word. But there are a few words that are, are helpful to know to fully appreciate the message. For example, we often talk about the different kinds of love. We talk about the agape love. And that's a, a helpful word to know to, to enrich our reading of scripture. So I would suggest that hesed, this this word translated here, steadfast love, is a similarly important word. It's a word that scholars say is hard to translate into English. And, and there's different words in the English Bible used to convey it. But it has profound meaning when you understand this word and you trace it through the scriptures. It describes God's unfailing, covenantal love. The King James Version translates it loving kindness. And that conveys some of it. I like, the, I like steadfast because it conveys the consistency and permanence of the love. It's not a fleeting love. It's not a superficial love. This love is the essence of who God is. It's, it's all that motivates his actions. And as I said, it's instructive to trace this word through the scriptures. Look at Psalm 136 and see the chorus that's repeated. Steadfast love endures forever. Sometimes you read it and you gloss over it. Oh yeah, that's that chorus again. Just skip, skip. But think about the verse that's before it and all the things that God's steadfast love accomplishes. So God's steadfast love is the reality-altering, the life-changing love. It demolishes the bleakness of verses 3 to 10 by replacing that reality with a new reality based on God's steadfast love. And we must linger on this verse. Next we see, when do we want God to give us this satisfaction? The text says, in the morning. And the most literal sense of this is at the dawn. And so Moses says, or asks, that God would satisfy him each day. We want to experience God's satisfaction every day. We need it. So we must pray that God would give us this satisfaction every day, lest we turn in vain and seek satisfaction in places that can't deliver. The King James translates this, uh, this word early, just simply early. And some have taken this to mean early in life. Indeed, Robert Murray McShane used this psalm and this verse in particular for the basis of his sermon, Why Children Should Fly to Christ Without Delay. Come early in life. Seek God's satisfaction early in life. Joel Beakey says that there's a sense of urgency in this word, that it means Soon or now. Satisfy us soon. Satisfy us right now. So whatever age you are, seek God's satisfaction, his steadfast love now. And for those of us who are hoping in God, there's no less urgency. We want to experience uh, 
God's steadfast love every day. And finally, this verse tells us that we can experience joy and gladness. Because of God's steadfast love, our days no longer pass under God's wrath. In verse 9, see verse 9, all our days pass under God's wrath. But now we rejoice and we can be glad in all our days. So God's steadfast love is the only source of ultimate satisfaction and joy and gladness. Let's look at verse 15. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. This request also reflects reality. It's not a trite thought for the day. It acknowledges that life is hard, that we do see evil, but there can still be gladness, gladness that God can give, gladness in spite of hardship. And commentators say that there's a sense of balancing or righting the scales in this verse, that Moses prays that God would make them glad in order to balance out the afflictions or offset the afflictions they've seen. But here we must go beyond the immediate context and note that with Jesus, the scales are not just balanced, they're tipped way over in favor of our eternal joy. In the broader context, God's steadfast love is fulfilled in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And our minds should go to Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 and 17, where he also describes how life involves suffering, but he knows that God, who raised Jesus from the dead, will also raise us, and we will be in God's presence. Paul continues, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. These are the realities, the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the, thing, the things that are unseen are eternal. The reality is that what God is preparing for us far outweighs, infinitely outweighs, the afflictions of life. Verse 16, the next request Moses makes, he says, Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. If we are going to get a heart of wisdom, if we are going to be satisfied and rejoice and be glad, then we have to see God's work. And Moses prays that God would show his work to his people. There's an experiential sense to this request. He's not just saying that we should simply know God's work. But shown in this verse has a sense of being a witness to something. Seeing or experiencing God's works. And this sense includes both physically seeing as well as spiritually discerning. We need to see God's work in our lives. Now, of course, it's essential to know the stories of Scripture, of God's mighty power to save his people. And many of Moses' prayers and proclamations recall the mighty deeds of the Lord. But this is a future-oriented prayer request. That the people would see a renewed demonstration of God's work. So we pray that we would see God's work in our lives in 2020. 
Each day when we pray that the Lord would satisfy us with his steadfast love, we pray that he would show us that he's working this miracle in our hearts. We pray that he would show us that he's moving in the heart of an unsaved friend. We pray that he would show us that he's moving through the ministry of this church. That we would see God's works in planting a new church in Kilbride, for example. God is working, so this is a prayer that we would see his working. And this implies, or even requires, that we're looking. So the challenge in this verse is to be looking. And this is a challenge for me, for you, in 2020. To be more sensitive to God's work. Perhaps for me to journal more, to reflect more deeply on God's work in my heart, on on circumstances and people around me, to see beyond the physical, natural, and look for the reality of God's work. An atheist sees the world without God. And I want to see the world as God sees it. That is to see his work in the world. And sometimes we're so busy. I know I am. We all get busy. We get distracted. And this relates back to being still and knowing that God is God. We don't pause to reflect and see God's work. And then we feel afflicted. And we feel that life is a sigh and we wonder why. Because we don't ask God to show us his works. The second part of this request is that our children would see God's glorious power. And I don't think it's an overstatement to say that there's an obsession in the Old Testament with the next generation remaining faithful to God. To God's works being seen and trusted by the next generation. In all of God's promises of faithfulness and his calls to obedience, they make frequent reference to the next generation. Psalm 78 and 145 and the early chapters of Deuteronomy are examples of this. And this was the primary means of the expansion of God's kingdom in the Old Testament. And while the New Testament sees an even greater expansion of God's kingdom as as people other than the people of Israel are invited in and called in, the salvation of the next generation is still a primary concern. And as we read this verse, we also see that it tells us that we need to see God's works in order for our children to see them. And we, fathers and mothers and the community of believers, we have a responsibility to teach and guide our children and pray for them that they would see God's glorious power. And a few weeks before Christmas, we launched the Pray For Me campaign here to invite different generations of people in our church to pray for our children and our young people. But we need to see God's work first. Finally, On this portion of the request, Ray Stedman, a a long-serving pastor at Peninsula Bible Church in California, he called this a prayer for hereditary healing, saying there's something in human life that persists from one generation to another. And this thought is not unlike some thoughts Pastor Steve once shared about generational sins and generational blessings. And the same thing in our life group on disciple-making parenting. We talked about training our children to take the land and to have a far-reaching impact for God. So the second part of this request is a prayer for multi-generational faithfulness. Now let's look at verse 17. Let the favor of the Lord be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. The word for favor here has a sense of God's approval 
It also has a sense of God's beauty. If you look, you might have a footnote to that effect in your Bible. Here Moses continues the contrasts of the psalm. In contrast to God's wrath, Moses prays for God's favor. In contrast to being dismayed, Moses prays that we would see God's beauty. In contrast to the brevity and futility of life, Moses prays that our work would be established, that it would be lasting. And as we see his beauty and experience his favor, God establishes the work of our hands. We talked at the start of the sermon about the desire for significance, the desire that our work, that our goals, that our resolutions, our lives would count for something. And especially at the start of a new year. So let us pray that God would establish our work in 2020. That we would work according to the beauty that we see in God and according to the favor that he gives. And then he can establish the work of our hands. So as we've considered this psalm together, we've looked at the implications and applications of each verse. We're entering a new year. We will be bombarded by messages this year, same as last, same as the following year. We'll be bombarded by messages that do not reflect the reality that's conveyed in this psalm. And the bombardment will be intensive. It will present an alternate reality, an attempt to lure you into believing that fleeting things are of true importance. And we won't be able to withstand this bombardment without God's help. And this psalm is a prayer for God's help, a prayer that shows us reality, it tells us who God is, who we are, and how we can experience God's blessing in 2020 and for eternity by living according to these realities. Two overarching applications remain as we conclude. This is a prayer. We need to pray it. I'm not going to repeat all the six prayer requests we just looked at, but the overall application is to meditate on God's word in 2020, to take Psalm 90 and pray through it. I need to do it. We all need to do it. Take all of God's word. Let it guide you in 2020. The second overarching application is one that we're going to consider now together as we share in the Lord's Supper. So as I pray, the elders will come forward and we'll, we'll share together in the Lord's Supper. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, the truth it conveys, how it shows us reality. Lord, our request this morning is that you would make this prayer real in our lives, that you would help us to know it, experience it, all the requests that Moses makes in this prayer that we've just been blessed by, Lord, that you would make these prayers active and real in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.